Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you today. And uh, if you've got a Bible with you, I want to invite you to take it and turn to Matthew chapter 9. It's in the New Testament, the first book of the New Testament there, Matthew chapter 9. If you want to use one of the Bibles that uh, we provide around the room, uh, you can grab one of those and turn to page 680. And uh, as we kick off this new series today called Jesus Is, we'll be putting these verses on the screen too uh, so that you can follow along with us. But before we do that, I, I just want to say thank you so much for all that you do. I, uh, I, I hope you realize you're recognizing just some of the amazing things that the Lord is doing right now through our church. Uh, when I say church, I mean right here at our Carmel campus and at our Noblesville campus as well. And I mean, there are so many things that we can be grateful for and thank the Lord for. I'm, I'm kind of coming off a high. I hope you are too. Just looking back to last week as we wrapped up our series Sent. Uh, I don't know if you realize this or not. I, I think our rough count between Carmel and Noblesville, we had over almost 150 people come forward at the end of our services just as a way of acknowledging, hey, I want to live for the Lord. I want to, I want to be sent uh, into this world. And whether it's my school, my neighborhood, where I work, you know, in my own home, I, I want want to share the good news of Christ in everything that I am doing. And man, that, that's just what our mission is all about. I mean, when we talk about helping people find their way back to God, yes, what we do here on Sundays is very important. It's a big part of our church, but I'm just telling you that mission is meant to be lived out, all right? It, it takes people, and I'm just so grateful for all of you that have said, hey, I want to be a part of that. I want to help people find their way back to God in my life, the people that the Lord is putting around me. And I don't know if you caught this either. You might uh, check out our annual report that I think we've got these back at the Info Hub. You can also read the digital version online. But man, as you just flip through here, I mean, let's not overlook, again, just some of the amazing things, the great blessings, you know, that God is providing through here, lives that are being changed. I mean, we're seeing growth, and, and it's so exciting to see our Carmel campus growing, our Noblesville campus is growing, our church is growing. These are exciting times, and uh, we are really excited about what's ahead. We think these next couple of years are going to be so much fun, and uh, so let's pray and thank the Lord together. Let's keep praying for His work here in our Carmel campus. Man, we got a great community here and so many things uh, that we can be a part of. And I want to ask you this too. As you pray, will you be praying specifically for our Noblesville campus right now? We're experiencing some real uh, challenges when it comes to facility size and parking and just so many kids that are, are coming. And we're in the last year and a half of our lease there at our Noblesville campus. So we're just praying about what's next and just asking the Lord to kind of lead and guide us in this next season. Uh, it's so much fun, and uh, we're one church, you know, even though we got two locations, we are one church, and so we're all a part of this uh, together. But let's, let's do that right now. Can we just take a moment and uh, thank the Lord for what He's doing, and then just invite Him into our time here as I share with you. Father in heaven, we thank you for what you're doing through Genesis Church. Uh, Lord, uh, we, we, it's all because of you. And uh, it's all for your glory, Lord. And uh, we thank you for how you're working uh, in every man, every woman, um, every student, every child uh, through our church. We're trusting you for all the days ahead. But thank you for how you've provided. Thank you for lives that are being changed. Thank you for the growth in all of our hearts to know you better, to, to live like Jesus here in this world. And we trust you for the days ahead. We trust you for what you're doing here uh, in Carmel and how you're going to continue influence and drawing people to yourself uh, through our church here, Lord. We thank you for what you're doing in Noblesville uh, to God. And we are trusting you. We're trusting you for every day. We're trusting you, especially for these next couple of years. And uh, so help us to be good listeners. Help us to be obedient. And and uh, Lord, just give us the privilege of seeing many more uh, come to know Jesus Christ through our lives and through our church. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, again, we're starting this series today called Jesus Is. And if I were to ask you to fill in the blank of that sentence, what would you say? 
Um, as, you, as you think about that phrase, Jesus is, you know, I think most of us in this room would probably answer close to the same. Most of us would, maybe, maybe not all of us, but, but suppose we stepped out into public. Suppose we stepped out of this facility and we went into, well, anywhere you might come into contact with people, whether that be at the grocery store, at the mall, or, or let's, just, let's just imagine for a moment, like imagine a, a crowd of students like on, on a campus like Ball State University, you know, going there. And, and, and so like, what if we went to a place like that and we just, we kind of presented the phrase, Jesus is fill in the blank. Like, what kinds of, of things might we hear? I, I think in an environment like that, we'd hear many more uh, sort of answers to a, to a phrase, to a question like that, who Jesus is. And here at Genesis, we believe that Jesus is the most important person in human history. All right, that, that's what we believe to be. And we're modeling our lives after him. We're doing everything that we can to, to grow our church uh, around him. And, and for you today, whether you're, you're curious about him, uh, maybe that's part of the reason why you're here today. Uh, maybe for you, you're, you're skeptical about him, but, but you're here because of some friends and uh, you know, they, they invited you to be here. Maybe, maybe you're entering into a relationship with him for the first time. Maybe, maybe you've been around Jesus or church for, for decades now. What, like, what we find is that there's always more to discover about him. Uh, there, there are so many things to learn and to know about Jesus. And so as Jerry mentioned, for the next five weeks, really leading us all the way up to Easter, we're going to spend some time with this sentence, Jesus is, in order to better understand who he is and also to consider what he might mean uh, for our lives. And so... Um, I want to do this for a second. I want to invite you, if you would, uh, to go back in time with me, all right, to kind of use your imagination. And for some of you, in going back in time, you're going to have to think a ways back, like you're going to have to go a long ways back. For others of you, uh, you might not have to think back very far at all, but uh, I want you to go back with me, if you would, to your teenage years, and specifically, if you went to a a school, uh, I want you to think back to the cafeteria for a moment, if you would, all right? I want you to think back to those cafeteria days, and I don't know about you, but when I was in middle school or high school, we kind of had this unpublished seating chart. You weren't assigned any specific seat, but uh, there were kind of groups of people. There were tribes of people, if you would, if you could imagine, that would just gather at different tables based on their likes, based on their interests. And so let's, let's just think about some of those tables, if you can remember back. I mean, there were all sorts of tables with all sorts of groups of people. There was certainly a table for the jocks, right? Uh, if you remember, I mean, wasn't there a table for or multiple tables for the jocks in your school, I, I kind of wanted to be at that table, but I just, I just didn't have those gifts, right? I didn't have those skills. But, uh, you know, this is where all the athletes would gather. If it, but, but, but think about the cafeteria a little bit more. I mean, there, there were those that maybe were better from stage. There were those that were better from the mic. And so maybe you had those on, the, on something like the speech team or the debate team or something or, or the theater. And so let, let's just say that there were those tables that were set aside for students that, you know, maybe this was a real passion in their life. And then at the same time, again, as you think about those tables, there were all also those that, that loved music, right? And, and so whether it be show choir, whether it be something like symphony, or we'll just say the, the band kids, right, would, would gather it at any one of these tables. And then, well, every cafeteria wouldn't be complete if you didn't have a table full of some nerds and some geeks, right? All right, but before we go judging them, let's just realize that probably many of them own and run the companies that many of you work for today, right? They're the, the smartest, they're the richest uh, among us. But that doesn't mean that there weren't able other tables as well. I mean, certainly there were the tables that were for the mean girls. There were tables for those guys that competed in food dares and, uh, and then certainly NASCAR fans, right? I mean, the, the point is that we had all sorts of tables, right? Like what, which table did you sit at? Like ser- look, look to the person next to you right now. Just real quickly, tell them what table uh, you sat at when you were growing up, when you were 
in school? Like, what, what, what table were you categorized by? You got it? Everybody got a table? For how many of you have you tried to put those memories out of your mind as much as possible, right? You, you just don't even want to go back there anymore. You've, just, you, you've kind of put that as far away as you can. Like, I remember this. I, thinking about those tables in the cafeteria, I remember my first day as an eighth grader at a brand new school, Chatham Glenwood Middle School in uh, central Illinois. And we had just moved there uh, from a really small town where I had attended a really small Lutheran uh, private school. And so this was a big move for me, going from seventh grade to eighth grade to a brand new school. It's a big move in many ways. And who likes to move, right? You know, when you're a kid or when you're in middle school for that matter. But I'll never forget that first day of eighth grade, walking into this brand new cafeteria with all of these kids. I knew a few of them at best, but that first day was terrifying. I mean, it really was. I I don't know what I did uh, on that first day. In fact, I just can remember that whole year just kind of bouncing around from table to table, trying to find my place, trying to find my group to fit in. And I thought that whole experience was a part of my past. And then when I went with our middle school students from Genesis to Mix last summer, all right, Mix is a big conference that we'll send middle school students to uh, this year. It was hosted at Indiana Wesleyan University with like a thousand kids. And I remember that first day because you eat in the college cafeteria there. I remember walking into the cafeteria, going through the food line and looking out and just seeing a thousand middle school kids all gathered at these tables having a good time. And all those bad memories just came rushing back in. I don't, I don't know where to sit. Who's going to let me sit at their table? Like again, it, it was a really terrifying sort of a moment. But, you know, tables, when you think about it, tables and the people that sit at them really say a lot. Tables tell us a lot about who's included and who isn't included. Like every one of us needs a table, right? I mean, when you think about life, whether it be in the past or even today, like we all want a table. We all want a place that we can say that we belong to. Well, interestingly enough, there were tables back in Jesus' day, too. In fact, the, first, uh, four, the four accounts of Jesus' life in the New Testament, which we commonly refer to as the Gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, they record, these four Gospels record eight dinner invitations that Jesus accepted. Now, three of those were with his really close friends and family, while the other five were often described or classified as peop- with people who were considered social outcasts in the day. And I want to look at one story with you for just a moment uh, of one of those dinners, all right, that Jesus attended as told by a follower of Jesus by the name of Matthew, all right? And so Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 9, if you've got your Bibles, if you want to follow along with us here, here's what Matthew records about this encounter, this moment with Jesus and these tables. Matthew writes this, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Now, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and what? Sinners. All right, and on hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And as you read this story, I just want you to notice that there are really two tables that emerge in this particular uh, scene with with Jesus. Uh, And you could describe the first table as the table where the sinner sat. 
all right? We see from the story. It was just simply the, the table where the sinners sat, and, and this is where the, the tax collectors were, all right? You notice that Matthew describes them as the sinners, the tax collectors, and, and, and what did people back then think of the tax collectors? Well, let me ask you, what, what, what do you think of people today that steal packages off of porches, right? Like, what, what sort of things come to mind for you? Or uh, how about people that uh, invent and create computer viruses, right? Like, we've, we've got certain categories for those types of people. Or how about, how about those that still write a check at the grocery store or the gas station, right? That's my mom and dad, right? I, I just learned that the other day, that they still do that. They still write these checks. Well, the tax collectors, they were worse than package-stealing virus creators bums. As Jewish men working for the Roman government, tax collectors were considered worse than traitors. All right, they were hated people. They, uh, they collected the taxes that were required by their superiors, but on top of that, they would squeeze the people uh, for extra in order to pay uh, themselves. And so they were greedy. They were dishonest people. They took advantage of the poor. You know, Again, these are their own people, and they did this all for personal gain. Well, Matthew here, get this, Matthew is not only the main character in this particular story next to Jesus, but let's be reminded that he's also the storyteller here. And as he writes this story, all right, from memory, he seems to know which table he and his friends belong to. Uh, Matthew sort of recognizes that, you know what, according to culture, we're, we're sinner's table sort of people. That's who we are. That's how we were categorized. That's how people saw us. And knowing, again, how these sinners, those at the sinner's table were, were viewed, it's no surprise then that no one in the community wanted to sit with those who were considered sinners, people like these tax collectors, all right, those that were sitting at the table. Now, the other table, for lack of better words, again, according to the story, we're just going to label those at the other table as the saints, right? All right, let's just call them the saints. These are the, the Pharisees. And while the tax collectors were known as the sinners, the saints were the self-righteous ones, all right? These were the ones that according to society, according to culture, could do no wrong whatsoever. And it wasn't because they were perfect. That's just what they thought about themselves, all right? That's how they saw themselves and, and many perceived them as well. Now, the, fa the Pharisees were masters of religious law. And there were something like 613 laws, all right, that kind of made up this religious system that Jesus entered into. And the Pharisees, guess what? They knew all of them, all right? They had them perfectly memorized. And they not only memorized them, but they uh, did everything they could to live them out. And at the same time, they expected others to follow these laws perfectly. And their, their piety, their, their personal piety allowed them to, to feel self-righteous, and it also encouraged them to point out the faults of the others around them. And so you could say they were professionals at judging others. And that just meant that they felt justified and looking highly at themselves, but looking down on the others. And again, the Pharisees hated the sinners. And the best way to deal with those that, that didn't measure up, if you would, was to just stay seated at their own particular table and to have nothing to do with those over here. And so you can imagine how surprised really how shocked they were by Jesus' behavior. Because according to what we find in Matthew 9, what does Jesus do? He enters the scene, and he pulls up a chair, and he sits here. And he sits down with the tax collectors and these so-called sinners. And, and this is huge, because again, what, according to the Pharisees and so many others, like to sit at a table with people like this wasn't just to simply share a meal with them, but it was a way of saying, you know what, I'm willing to share my life with you. All right, I'm willing to be in relationship with you. I'm willing to have community with you. It was Jesus' way of saying, you know what, let's be friends. 
All right, let's get to know each other. Again, let's spend time with one another. And so when they're shocked and disgust, these Pharisees, these, these saints, they, they turn to Jesus' disciples and they ask, like, why in the world does your teacher hang out with the, with the tax collectors and these sinners? In other words, when given a choice between sitting at the sinner's table or sitting at the saint's table, why does Jesus sit with those people? Right, doesn't that make sense? Why, why would Jesus, why would your leader, why would your teacher be willing to sit with those people? Now, they just didn't understand him. They, and so they judged Jesus much like they judged everyone else. But here's the thing, before we, before we judge the Pharisees too harshly, maybe it might be helpful if we kind of think about how, well, it's possible that we've all got, or at least at times, a little bit of the, the Pharisees in ourselves too. Like this story in Matthew 9 exposes a tendency that I think many of us have especially if you've been around church for a while, like myself, this tendency that we have to kind of arbitrarily set up a a rating system, if you would, for sin, right? Let's just call it the badness scale for a moment. And here's how the badness scale works. This this badness scale says that we, we sort of categorize sin. And so when we look at sin, when we look at the actions of others, we might say that there are very small sins, and these small sins might mean, okay, so maybe I tell a little white lie once in a while. Maybe I, I, I drive 10 miles per hour over the speed limit once in a while. Maybe I hide my affection for cats, you know, or something. But these are, these are small sins, right? They're really no big deal. But then at the same time, let's just say that there are these small to medium sort of sins. And, and when you think about these small to medium sort of sins, it's like, well, if it's not hurting anybody else, it doesn't really matter. It's not having an impact on my life. I'll do what I want to do. It's my life. I can make my own choices. But then step a little further to, to my left, and there are kind of these medium to large size sins. And, and when these start happening, well, maybe when we start making decisions like this, you, well, you might question somebody else's character. You might question their judgment. You know, you might consider some of the consequences and say, hey, how could you go that far, but then there are the supersized sins, right? And, and these supersized sins, you know, sometimes if you've got somebody like this in your life, it's like we will just, we'll put them out. You know, we'll say we don't want anything to do with them. Like how in the world could you ever possibly do something like that? But here's the real danger. Not only do we categorize sin then, but we tend to categorize people by it. Uh, even on this badness scale, we'll, we'll categorize others. Because over here at this table, right, as we think about life, well, these are the really, really good people. And, man, you look at them and you see them and you think to yourself, that, wow, they've got it all together. And when we think about kind of these really, really good people and in our life and in history, I mean, you put Mother Teresa sit at this table, right? I mean, somebody like uh, Martin Luther King Jr. sits at this table. Somebody like Jerry Neville, like he sits at this table, right? I mean, he can do no wrong. But then at the same time, you've got this table way over here. And when we think about this table and we think about people that might sit here today, we might think to ourselves, you know what, these are, well, again, there are some notorious people all throughout history that really belong at this table, but in a very personal way, too, you've probably got some people that have hurt you deeply that you would say, you know what, they, they belong at that table, too. Like, maybe you think about an ex and the way they treated you or some of the actions that they took, and you, yeah, they, they belong at that table. Maybe there's a, a former business partner that you had that really kind of went the other direction or maybe cheated you out of some money. You know, we're going to go ahead and put them at this table. Maybe that one neighbor, you know, belongs at this table. Maybe there's somebody that has taken advantage of you and your past, and you would definitely say, you know what, they belong at this table. And where do we put ourselves then? You know, where, where, where do you put yourself on, on this badness sort of scale? 
I mean, if you're a little rebellious, right, or if you find yourself struggling with some regret or some of the consequences of decisions that you made in the past, I mean, maybe you'd say, you know what, yeah, I belong at a table like this one. I belong on this end of the scale. But for others of you, I think we'd say, you know, I wouldn't put myself over here. I don't think there are many of us that would say we belong at this table, or at least we wouldn't tell people publicly, you know, or out loud that we belong at this table. And I think most of the time what we would do is we'd kind of look at these as a scale and say, you know, I'm probably right here. Like, this would be safe to say, you know, I'm not, I'm not too far. I'm, like, I'm definitely not like those people. I'm not that good, but, but I'm certainly not that bad. And so, again, I think we, we kind of tend to maybe think high, higher of ourselves than we should at times, or we'd say, you know what, I'm, I'm basically a good person. But here's the problem. God doesn't view people the way we view people. He doesn't. He, he doesn't see people the way that we tend to see, see people. God, God if you, he doesn't have a badness scale. Like, he doesn't see things like that. And in fact, we, we see evidence of this in his, in his letter to Romans. It's in the New Testament. The, uh, the Apostle Paul writes this, and, and he warns us. And he's, he just basically says, hey, here's the way God sees things. In Romans chapter 3, verse 10, Paul writes, you know what? There is no one righteous, not even one. All right, no one is righteous, not even one. And why? Well, he goes on to say a few verses later in Romans 3.23, and this is so important that we hear this today, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul says all of us, every one of us, every person that has ever lived, every person that will live, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Basically, when it comes to sin, there's no sliding scale, all right? When it, when it comes to sin, there are really just two categories of people in this world. There are those that are with Jesus, and then there's everyone else. I think Paul would say that to us today, if you hear this, that there are those who are with Jesus and everyone else. Because here's what Jesus knows. Jesus knows that this world is full of people. There are those people in this world who are, think they are righteous, that they've got it all together, and then there are those that know they are sinners. And the real tragedy in this particular story in Matthew 9 is those who think they are righteous, and again, those of us who, who think we are good or we're okay on the badness scale, like these Pharisees, well, we end up being the ones who who really miss out in seeing and experiencing Jesus for who he really is and what he can do. And, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, a pastor by the name of Judah Smith uh, wrote this book, excuse me, uh, called Jesus Is. I know some of you maybe received a copy of this. Uh, this series is kind of loosely based on this book and, and many other churches that have taught through this book as we're now doing. But uh, I love this quote. There's some great, great words in here, some great stories. Here, here's what Judah Smith says. He writes this. He says, you know, we are often harsher judges than God himself. Uh, the, the evil in others arouses our righteous anger, so we don our robes and pound our gavels without ever taking time to hear their stories, the, the stories of others. He, he says, here's what we do. We condemn people to life sentences without parole while God in heaven is saying, wait, I love that man. Or there is hope for that woman. Basically, you may have cast them off, you may ride them off, but you know what? They can be saved. There is hope for each of us. And so imagine this, in, into this first century drama, what Jesus basically does is he walks into this middle school, high school cafeteria. You can imagine him with his tray. He comes in, he surveys the situation, the scene, and where does he choose to sit? Can you just imagine coming over and pulling up a chair at this table and saying, that's the table where I want to sit? And by doing so, what Jesus was doing is he was choosing to be close to the liars. He was choosing to be close to the thieves, the gossips, the adulterers, the drunks. He, he pulled up a chair next to the gluttons, the prostitutes, the cheaters, the mess-ups. And Jesus sat down with a, a group of people that were often categorized, miscategorized by society. And why did he do it? Well, 
Maybe it was here. Maybe it was those at, at even this sinner's table that were the most likely to welcome him and to listen to him and be changed by who he is and what he means and what he can do for our lives. And why did he do it? Well, the power of, of Jesus is just this. And if you're taking notes and you want to write this down today, it's just this, that, that Jesus is a friend of sinners. I mean, over and over again, if you look at his life, Jesus is a friend of sinners. He models this. He demonstrates this. He wants to be with people. He wants to be with people like you and me, even though he knows we're messy. And he, he wants to be in relationship with sinners, people like you and me. And well, here's the really cool thing about that. His friendship isn't based on, as the scripture says, on merit, but his friendship is based on mercy. And he desires to be close with us, and it has nothing to do with yours and mine, our worthiness. It's not something we can earn or achieve from him. The truth is, we could never mess up so bad that he would turn his back on us because Jesus' desire to be close to us has everything to do with his love and his kindness and his grace. And uh, we looked at these words from Romans just a moment ago. Look at also these words that Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. He's basically saying, hey, here's what I've learned. Here's what I know. He writes this, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. Like, how do we know? Like, how do we really know that he loves us? How does he demonstrate that? Paul writes that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You want to know what it boils down to? You want to know what it comes down to for us? How do we know? How do you really know? It's the truth. It's this fact that Christ died for us. See, every person on the badness scale, all of us, we're all sinners. And there are the really good people and there are those over there and there are those of us that might say we're somewhere in between. But Jesus came, he came for every single one of us. Jesus came not to call the righteous, as the scriptures say, but Matthew writes, but to, but to call the sinners. He's a friend of sinners. And I don't know about you, but that's good news for me. Like I was just thinking about that this morning as I was preparing for today. Like this is good news for me because it means that, that Jesus is a friend of mine. He's a friend of mine even though he knows my heart. Uh, he knows my thoughts and my actions, my inclinations. He knows that I can be a pretty harsh judge of myself at times. He knows that I can be a pretty harsh judge of others at times. And yet, even though he knows my heart, even though he knows my inclinations, he still chose his own death so that he could have a relationship with me, you know, so that he could be a friend of mine. And you know, even thinking about this story, I'm reminded of another quickly in, in John chapter 8. And uh, you can turn there if you want. Uh, I'm just going to kind of briefly summarize it for you. It's, a, it's an account where this crowd, they, they catch a woman in the act of adultery. And, uh, and so in doing, they drag her out of this house and they bring her to a public place to where Jesus was. And they say to Jesus, hey, Jesus, we caught this woman in the act of adultery. The law says, one of those 613 laws says that we can stone her. We can execute her for what she's done. What do you say, Jesus? Man, put yourself and that woman's shoes for just a moment. Did she make a mistake? Yes, for sure. Uh, could we say that she's a sinner? Sure, absolutely. But that certainly doesn't tell the whole story about her and what's true about her. And so if you could picture this, as you could picture the eyes of this crowd on her, just glaring at her and the cutting words and the threats, like you could just imagine this moment of shame and condemnation. And what she really needed in that moment is she needed a friend. She needed a savior, and so, well, as the story goes, Jesus bends down into the dirt and very calmly just starts writing in the dirt, and after a while, the, he, he says to the crowd, just Jesus says to this crowd of these men that are holding these rocks, he says, if you're so perfect, that's my translation, all right, of, of the text, but if you're so perfect, well, then go ahead and throw the first stone. 
I want to just stop there for this morning and say, you know, I know that some of you might feel like you're in a place of life right now where you are judged. You feel judged. Maybe you've made some bad decisions, some tough choices, and you're living in the consequences of those right now. It's impacting your life, your relationships. Maybe you had a divorce and you feel judged for that. Maybe you, you have a reputation right now, but you're really trying to turn over a new leaf, but you just can't peace, get people around you to see that you're different. You know that something's changing you. Everyone else may not see it, but what you really need to know, and maybe what you really need to know today is that Jesus is there for you and he's ready to defend you. He's ready to give his life for you. And for this woman, you know, again, with all of these men standing around her waiting to execute her, well, it just took Jesus' words, and one by one, the men walked away, one by one, until every one of them were gone. And then look what Jesus says to her in John chapter 8, verse 10. It says that Jesus, John records that Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She replied, no one, sir. And then Jesus said, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. And here's what I want you to see this morning, that Jesus, notice that Jesus, he didn't condone her sin. He didn't do that. No, in fact, he told her not to do it again, but he also, he also didn't condemn her for her sin. Instead, he forgave her, and he loved her, and he helped set her on a new path. And why did he do it? Because Jesus is a friend of sinners. And today, I just want to say this. I, I hope that that truth, Jesus as a friend of sinners, that it could be both a challenge and an invitation for you, for some of us today. Like, like maybe the challenge is this. Let's start with the challenge first. Maybe for the, the challenge is for those of you that are here today that have a relationship with Jesus. Because in Jesus, we see what it looks like to reach out to people regardless of what they've done or their reputation. I mean, that, that was the pattern of Jesus' life. The pattern of his life was to choose to sit at a table with sinners, to choose to sit at a place with people that have been rejected by everyone else. And so here's a question for you today. If you truly desire to follow the Lord and to model the life of Jesus in this world, who do you need to welcome to your table? Is there somebody that you've pushed out? Is there someone you've turned your back on or turned away from because you've been so repelled by their sin or their actions or their people that you have avoided or ignored? Like how like Jesus might you and how might we do a better job of loving people and caring for those who are sinners? Someone else so they might experience Jesus in a whole new way. And imagine hearing others say about you or about Genesis that, you know what? As much as I've seen in Jesus, like imagine someone saying this, and they're a lot like Jesus. Like, they, like imagine someone saying of you and me, like he or she is a friend of sinners. Like it doesn't mean you condone their sin. It doesn't mean that we're just simply avoiding or not pointing people to the path that we'd ultimately hope that looks more and more like Jesus. But sharing a table with someone just says, I'm willing to share my life with you. I'm willing to do life with you. And I want you to see what's changing me because, well, I believe it could do the same for you too. And so that's the challenge, but there's also an invitation. And the invitation is this. To, well, I just hope you know, and maybe for someone here today, I hope you know that more than anything, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the Son of God, he desires to be in a relationship with you. He desires to sit at this table of life and your story and your present circumstances and everything you've hoped for or longed to be. Like Jesus is a friend 
and he wants to be a part of your life in a really special way. And I, I just want to say this, there is no greater decision that you can make in this world to trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I was 12 years old when I did that. I, I had to make a personal decision to trust Christ with my life. I was baptized, and I am so grateful that I have this promise and this hope that every day I can live in the presence and in friendship with Jesus. And if you've never made a decision like that, if you've never trusted Christ, if you've never received his friendship, I just want you to know that today you can do that. Uh, Today could be a day that you make that decision. And uh, Paul writes in Romans 10, 9, helping us understand how we do just that. Here's what he says. He says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that Christ raised him from the dead, you can be saved. You can be in friendship with Jesus Christ and make him the Lord of your life. Is somebody ready to make that choice today? You ready to make that move today to come closer to Jesus as he desires to come closer to you? And as Jerry mentioned, you know, in just a few weeks on Easter weekend, we're going to celebrate baptisms. Uh, We like to say that baptism is a great step. It's a way of going public with a personal choice that you've made to make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life. We'd love to help you do that. Um, but but I, I want to encourage you, don't, don't put it off the decision till Easter. You can make the decision today to trust Christ with your life, to enter into friendship with him. Would you be willing to do that right now? Can we just bow our heads together? As we bow our heads together to pray, I just want to ask you, to think about maybe where the challenge is for you today. Maybe, maybe the challenge is to say, you know what, I, I know Christ, but I want to take a greater step in modeling Christ to the people around me. I want to welcome others to my table. Maybe just take a moment and pray that in your own words. Lord Jesus, help me to live more like you. Help me to be a friend of sinners as you were a friend of sinners. And for people to see Christ in my life, my hope and glory. But for others of you today, maybe it's, well, maybe today's an opportunity to invite Christ to be the Lord of your life, to enter into friendship with him. Again, the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 10, 9, that if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Can I ask you today, as we pray, do you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead? Are you willing today to declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord? The promise is that you will be saved. You can do that where you're seated right now say it to yourself. If you need to say it out loud, go ahead and say it out loud. Jesus is Lord. Jesus be my Lord, my Savior. I believe. I trust. I want friendship with you. I want you to be the Lord of my life. Father in heaven, we thank you for our Savior. We thank you for the model and the example that we have in Christ, in Jesus. Help us to live more like him each day. Help us to know his love and to pattern our lives after him. And it's in your name we pray.